Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored once again to be joined by my friend, Charles Scriven. Thanks for talking with all of us today. Well, I am so happy to be part of this, Alex. Thank you. It's been a treat to uh, talk about your life and your ideas through this Time to Start Over series that's been published um, over quite a few months on Spectrum's website. And here we are at the finale, uh, part seven, which is the quest for community church life reimagined. And here you take on several challenges, especially fundamentalism. And in the context of just coming out of annual council, I think this is essential reading. What's your thesis? Well, my thesis is, uh, perhaps twofold, the community is under threat because in the long run, fundamentalism is a dead end, a complete dead end. Why is it a dead end? Because the way fundamentalism works, it tends to be backward looking, always on the, uh, look, uh, always on the lookout for attacks to currently held points of view, which means that uh, people's attention is constantly focused elsewhere than on the challenges that lie straight ahead of us and that require us to embrace the gift of the Holy Spirit and to allow God's current presence to guide us into ever deeper truth. When that idea of fundamentalism obtains, we're just not prepared to be a community that bears a useful witness. So that's a threat. Now, the uh, other thesis of this final essay is that uh, the most important consideration, if we wish to uh, reverse the impact of the fundamentalism to which the church turned in 1919, that's a point that is backed up by scholars like Michael Campbell. The, most, the best strategy for reversing it is to rethink what it means to be a Christian community. And so in my essay, I make an argument that turns on the... Uh, Greek word koinonia, I won't give full explication of that now, but what that word says to us in its several important uses in the New Testament is that uh, true Christian community is a matter of solidarity with Christ, including solidarity, solidarity with the Christ who continues to lead us into deeper understanding. Um, I can elaborate on that more, but that's the bare bones of what I'm trying to say in the final part. Great. We'll jump back to that idea of community in a second here, but I actually want to talk to you in practical terms about community, as we've talked about before your time at Sligo and at your time leading um, then Columbia Union College, you have uh, led community, thought a lot about how you construct community. And today I want to talk about two other parts of your involvement in leading communities. One, Kettering College, and then secondly, Spectrum, 
which you've been a part of for ever. <laughs> Pretty much. So I had an article. I had an article, thanks to Roy Branson, in the very first issue. Yes. So, so talk. Let's talk first. Um, since we were talking about an educational institution last time, let's move to Kettering College. As you were um, leading that organization and thinking about community and what it means to be an Adventist community with a wider witness to the world. What was important for you as you were thinking, as you were putting the pieces together? Well, I did have to take into account that at Kettering, I was part of a much larger, larger organization than merely the college. Um, to be honest, and we may as well uh, step around the temptation for me to overstate my role there. I was the president of the college, but effectively I was a, I used to say, lower paid uh, vice president of the Kettering <laughs> Health Network. Um, still, I had uh, everyday operational responsibility for the college. And it turned out that this was an interesting assignment. For one thing, the college had a long history of having a majority of students and uh, nearly 50% of the faculty as people who are not members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So for the first time in my life, I was in a setting which was clearly um, diverse res with respect to religious commitment. I found, actually, that I very much appreciated that fact about the college, more so perhaps than I would have predicted, because it turned out that it made for interesting conversation, point one. But point two, it also had the effect of distracting Adventist administrators like me and Adventist faculty members and staff members from the usual preoccupation with Adventist politics, Adventist problems, uh, Adventist gripes, and on our best days, the possibilities for Adventist renewal. We instead were in an environment where as it were, we were all on our best behavior in front of our colleagues because we were interested in being helpful colleagues who were nevertheless Adventists. So that was a very interesting fact. The other fact that I need to say in plain English is that while I was there, which was roughly between 2000 and around 2013 or 14, the college was flourishing for the reason that both the economy and the needs of the healthcare system were having the effect of drawing in very big, by our standards, enrollments. There was a constant growth in enrollment. I was there for 13 years and never lost one wink of sleep over finances. The third thing I want to say is that I uh, ended up with a group of fellow administrators. We had big, but not jobs as big as the ones at the larger Adventist institutions, where we could keep in fairly close touch with our colleagues. We could, some of us get to know some of the students. And in that setting, I made a big point of uh, connecting very often in a personal way with members of the faculty. I was managing by walking around as the guru say, and I really think it uh, was a good thing. I would even take the trouble to show up to events. Now we didn't have musical uh, groups, but I had one faculty member who was a super good uh, actress, actor, and uh, when she got a gig in one of the uh, local amateur 
theater productions, which she did now and again, I was always showing up. I wanted to be present. And I think it was uh, very helpful that the conversations that ensued together with all the interactions I had with uh, executives in the Kettering Health Network and uh, all the experience I'd already accrued, I think made for a, a pretty successful run. And I don't mind saying so, although I want to or underscore again that I also had pretty favorable circumstances. But it was fun. It was cooperative. I tried not to lord it over my colleagues. <laughs> and uh, in administration, one's success in doing that is usually a bit patchy. Uh, but I think people could still see that I meant well. And it was quite fun, actually. That's great. Um, a couple of things that I pull out from there is one, it sounds because it wasn't just a sort of um, insular Adventist world uh, due to the mission focus of the school, the enrollment, faculty. You mentioned being on, uh, er, er, folks were on their best behavior. And that, you know, in church terms is having like an outward focus, you know, thinking about outreach in some way and being aware of our wider witness. So I think that is one of the key parts of, of uh, creating a community is, is not just getting um, focused too much on the, the ends uh, and the goings on of church uh, politics. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you entirely. I mean, there's not much point in having a Christian community that's inward looking when the mission that has been uh, passed along to us in the New Testament is one of attempting to transform the world, attempting to build a larger network of compassion-driven human beings. I mean, you've got to be outward looking and you've got to be connecting all the time with people who are uh, outside of the community, as well as with all the people that are inside. I think that's also a good lesson for um, administration large, you know, administration writ large in the denomination. Um, at annual council, again, we had focus on, you know, what this or that professor might be teaching at a random uh, college or university. And I think our church leaders at the top level, I'm talking about the 342 members of the executive committee, are really wasting their time with that. If they really trust God, God will take care of um, an issue of hermeneutics uh, here or there. And if they're really doing, um, you know, following the steps of Christ, they need to be thinking about the larger church and what lies outside the church, that great uh, field to be harvested, so to speak. Yeah, I agree entirely. I think one of the features of fundamentalism, which I draw out in the article, is that fundamentalists forget or substantially forget the doctrine or the teaching function of the Holy Spirit. It's forgotten. So there's a preoccupation with the status quo, and there's a distrust of local communities. That distrust is never manifested in the New Testament, never. There is a basic willingness in the New Testament for the characters and authors to kind of accept the idea that God is overseeing all of us together. There's risk involved, but God doesn't run away. We can trust the presence of the Holy Spirit here, there, and everywhere. In some local congregation in Africa, in uh, an institution in North America, we can 
trust God to take care of us over the long run. Yes, you use the term Christocentrism, and I think that's such a helpful um, guide to hold up when we're thinking about um, what makes community. Um, you are taking on, you're defining fundamentalism in terms of its treatment of scripture. Do you mind just talking a little bit of, or maybe doing a comparison between um, what's, we've talked a little bit about what causes come out of that um, mistake, but talk, maybe define that a little bit and then define the way that you like to approach scripture. Yes, uh, fundamentalists tend to view the Bible as having a kind of flat mechanical authority. When I was a child, it was not unusual for a minister to tell an inspiring story that had as its climax, someone who was uh, in the midst of crisis, randomly opening the Bible, sticking their finger on one or the other of the columns and suddenly finding a passage that was just dead perfect for their current crisis. But anyone who actually attends to the content of scripture knows that you could land on uh, some piece of scripture that wouldn't be very helpful. I mean, happy are those who um, toss their children against the rocks. That's in the Bible. So um, what I want to argue is that the human authors of the scripture, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, recorded uh, their sense, their human sense, but divinely assisted human sense of the story, their human but divinely sense, uh, assisted sense of uh, the ideas that give rise to the story. And uh, what we have in the 66 books is an accumulation of many authors' points of view, an accumulation that if we have no criterion for distinguishing what should count as authoritative for us today and what may not count is challenging. It's, it's uh, difficult to know what to do. It transpires, however, that uh, Christians, insofar as we embrace the New Testament, have a clear record of early thinkers who said what? They said that the word of God is the living word of God, namely the incarnate Christ. They said that uh, the prophets spoke in former days, but that in these last days, the God of scripture was speaking through the, the son and that this son was uh, a, a perfect imprint of the divine being. They said in the transfiguration stories, yes, here's Moses, here's Elisha, here's Jesus. A voice from heaven comes down and says, uh, listen to Jesus. That's not to say you don't listen to Elijah or to uh, Moses, but it is saying that there is a final criterion. This point is made again in 28, Matthew 28, 18 as children. And we only learn 29, 28, 19, and 20. Go ye into all the world and make disciples. 28, 18 has Jesus say, or has the message comes through that all authority has been given to Christ. So the Bible is indisputably, it's unassailably Christocentric insofar as we give to the New Testament the authority to help us understand how to read scripture. So I do that. 
the second thing I do when I read scripture, and then I, I won't go for much further than this, I understand that scripture is fundamentally about how we are to live. It's not fundamentally about what metaphysic we should embrace. It's not fundamentally about this or this, this or that detail of, say, whether the universe has three basic levels or whether it revolves around the sun or whatever. It's fundamentally about how disciples ought, by God's grace, to live their lives. So I always read the scripture with a view to the question, what is this telling me about how to live? I read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 with that question in mind. What am I learning from these marvelous chapters of Holy Writ about what frame of mind I may entertain that can buttress and undergird a way of life? That's what I'm always interested in. So I think that's probably enough uh, at this stage, although maybe you have a question. I, I appreciate that so much, the way that you expressed that, uh, reading scripture uh, in terms of my ethical duty to respond to the divine in me and around is what I'm taking from what you're saying um, That's right. and those around me. Um, you include a, a passage here um, from Jeremiah 30 that I would like to just read um, out of uh, your essay. Jeremiah portrays a God so exasperated by the Judean people as to exclaim that there is no medicine for your wound, which I no healing for you. So appropriate in these um, fraught times. But soon comes a strange therefore. God continues, therefore I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal. You write, it's not so much the therefore of logic as the therefore of solidarity. God cannot help but watch and care, cannot help but speak hope to brokenness. So beautiful. And you define. Thank you. And I should, I should let, I should acknowledge here. This won't surprise you and probably wouldn't surprise many people who are listening, but I had the advantage of some uh, mentoring by way of his books from Walter Brueggemann. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't say that I know the book of Jeremiah so well that that just popped into my head. Um, but it really is a wonderful, it's a beautiful idea. God is exasperated. Now you can find all kinds of buttressing for that idea in a, in a, of all sources, uh, someone like Abraham Joshua Heschel, who underscores constantly the pathos of the divine, the, the, the feelings, the emotional life of the divine. God gets exasperated. God does get ticked off. But in the end, what wins is this fundamental love for us, mercy toward us, commitment to the promise of the covenant. And in that brief little piece of Jeremiah 30, it comes through strikingly. It's a wonderfully um, helpful uh, passage for anyone who is struggling to contemplate. You use the word commitment there, and you're um, defining koinonia or solidarity with Christ and one another in terms of that idea of commitment. And um, that's what I find in the spectrum community, a commitment uh, to a set of values, 
and a commitment to conversation. Now, as I understand it, you are the one who gave us our mission statement, creating community through conversation. And I would love for you to tell us what that means to you. Well, I think the phrase may have been uttered by me. I remember it was early on in the period while I was uh, functioning as the chair of the Adventist Forum Board that we tried to think things through and that little com- that little phrase came out. I mean, it ended up having a place on the cover, uh, a kind of a tagline that I, I still think is quite memorable, but you have to know that I feel deeply indebted here to people like Roy Branson, who had enormous effect on the development of the Admins Forum. He was a one-person conversation maker. (laughs) He transformed uh, the seminary for a certain kind of student. I was there a year before he came. I was there the year he was in his first year of teaching. And the transformation of outlook that I underwent under his impact was astonishing. Uh, just today, I had a conversation with a fellow researcher, you would know who, uh, and we were talking together about Edward Heppenstall, who had been my teacher. I had spent a summer with him. And um, what I had never gotten from Heppenstall, whom I much admire, and his passion for teaching was phenomenal, was any sense at all of the Hebrew prophetic sensibility the ethos of the Hebrew prophets. He was still, to be honest, um, within a paradigm of Adventism that was preoccupied with the fate of the individual Mm -hmm. and was concerned most of all with how we can come to experience some kind of confidence in salvation and in the grace of God. We had spent a summer, some of us, with Heppenstall in England, and my colleague had written, had read just today uh, three articles that I wrote for the old youth instructor and noticed that I hadn't really picked up very much in my discussion of the beatnik community in London that we were kind of interacting with. I hadn't picked up very much about their feelings about capitalism or about this or that. It was mainly, uh, you know, about the meaning of their lives, etc. And I reminded him that None of us on that trip with Hepasol had ever met Branson. <laughs> and if we had, it would have been a very different kind of summer mm-hmm. because what Branson did was to introduce us to the Hebrew prophets. But to get back to my real point here, he taught his classes as one who facilitates conversation. His classes changed so many of us, especially in my class the year after and the year after those first students. And he didn't lecture us very much. He simply facilitated conversation. We could never forget that because these were among the most transformative classes that any of us ever had in our lives. So I think I owe that phrase to Roy, even though I'm not so uh, humble as to deny that maybe the phrase proper once came out of my mouth. (laughs) If it did, terrific. Well, we stand on the shoulders of each other, right? That's correct. Um, I think it's important to also recognize, maybe looping back to the beginning of our conversation here, that this is not only about what forum types 
like to do, which is converse with each other, throw out ideas, hear another's reaction, but also the sort of wish that we have for the larger Adventist community, which is to be fearless, to speak up, to share what, what they believe, and to create an atmosphere, a political atmosphere, a social atmosphere that allows for that. Would Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that what we want is a community where many, perhaps most, of the Sabbath school classes are energetic, forward-looking, and yet devoted to the scripture's story and to the Lordship of Christ. We have, during the pandemic, many of us been blessed by various Zoom classes where there really is an openness and enthusiasm. That needs to be the case throughout. Wesley it was who kind of invented the notion of classes of people who get together, talk, and in the course of talking, uh, enhance their sense of what it means to be followers of Jesus. Every one of our Sabbath school classes should be a place alive with vigorous conversation. We need to completely set aside catechetical approaches to Sabbath school where the idea is to look up the answer and write it down. No, we need to pose questions that generate transformative conversation. And it can be done in other settings than those around universities. The fact is it can be done and many people are doing it. Not enough, however. Yes. Well, I um, want to leave with this uh, question to you because we're talking about community. And I guess I'd love to hear, get you on record for what your hope is for the larger advent. Let's say, let's go this way. The larger, the, the larger human project, Adventism, and then what the spectrum community, uh, what role it should play in that. So let's start with the, the larger um, social condition, the human condition, and then what Adventism can do, and then what Spectrum can do. Smaller and smaller uh, circles here. Well, the larger human project, uh, from the standpoint of anyone who has been influenced by the biblical narrative, should be a project of creating uh, a social life among God's children that uh, allows any one of the circle of God's children to flourish, any one of them. Any kind of an arrangement under which a substantial or percentage, perhaps even a majority of God's children have no opportunity to flourish. They're starving to death or they're trying to find to find a way to keep a roof over their heads. They certainly don't have the opportunity to educate themselves or to ever have a comfortable vacation. That kind of a condition is a scandal from the point of view of the God we worship. And the human project, whether in the hands of secular people or, in, or people of any religious community, ought to be the project of creating a flourishing human community in which all God's children have a shot. Um, that's our project. And uh, I think that the Adventist role within that project is not necessarily that we will control the project because we won't. We are human beings who are finite. We have to engage 
in conversation with other points of view, or we will become preoccupied with our own small worlds and fail to be what we could be. It should be the case instead that Adventists, in their devotion to Christ, in their, uh, their, their sense of hope, their commitment to the truth, their uh, upholding of the Lordship of Christ, in all of that, we should be able to bear a witness that not only enhances our own personal lives, not only enhances the shared life that we enjoy when we have a healthy relationship with a local congregation or a set of Adventist friends or a Sabbath school class, that conversation should contribute to the larger human conversation. We are not making a real difference, an important difference, if what goes on within our church goes entirely unnoticed. We know that our pioneers got quite a bit of notice because the world was smaller then and they were saying things that people uh, pricked up their ears to listen to. There's a tendency when a community becomes ensconced in its own problems and becomes driven by a fundamentalist backward-looking vision for its relevance to begin slowly to deteriorate. We should be affecting the wider world in religious liberty, perhaps to some in some some degree we still do. In healthcare, I think we still do that to some degree. But um, with respect to the larger questions of justice, the larger questions of hope, the uh, question of how you maintain peace and human wholeness in a world divided by rancor, by class, by some who succeed and others who fail and feel oppressed, that all those big projects, if we're not contributing, if they're not listening to Ted Wilson, if they're not listening to you, Alexander, and to me at all, we simply are not succeeding. And we uh, are, are on the knife edge of sheer irrelevance. We should be making the news, at least now and then. And what's the role that you, th- that you see for um, individual folks who find themselves turning to the Spectrum website for information and for connection, reading the journal, joining an Adventist forum meeting? Um, what, do, what role can they play in all of this? Well, the, the role I would hope for, and I say this as, as someone who has been a pastor, we talked about that, and I'm very aware of the difficulty that uh, attends being a thoughtful layperson in some contexts where there are very few conversation partners. But what I would like to, I, to see, ideally, is that people who read the Spectrum website and who, at the same time, care substantially about the life of the church, including the lives of all those who haven't had the benefit of uh, higher education or of all those who may now be fundamentalists, but could in fact experience an enhanced version of their humanity if they could be liberated from a backward looking um, ideology for a forward looking faithful version of discipleship. The second way of living is adventurous. The last way of the former way, the fundamentalist way, is stifling and irrelevant. I can only say amen. 
It's been a pleasure talking with you over this series. Thank you for your innumerable um, conversations and contributions. And uh, if folks would like to read your um, final Time to Start Over essay, The Quest for Community Church Life Reimagined, it will be on the website um, uh, when this podcast is published. Thank you, Chuck, for your spirit of generosity and talking with me. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. And let me close by reminding us of something that the author of Colossians said in chapter three, above all, clothe yourselves with love. We got to do that. That's not weak-minded. That's the true strength that we should be embodying. Amen again. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. This has been a great privilege. Thank you so much. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive.